happy September. Happy Housetalk pregame season four is back. Welcome back. Welcome back. I should have I should have had um Mace's welcome back playing in the background. Man, welcome back, welcome back. Episode 131, season four premiere, brand new season. College football starts this week. NFL starts next week. Football is back for the next 27 weeks of the year. What better way? It's 71 here in Virginia. It's 70 in Dallas. I'm assuming it's got to be between 70, somewhere around 70 in Ohio. Welcome back, everybody, to House Talk pregame. Dr. Pitts, how are you doing? Uh-oh, can you hear me? You know what, Ronnie? I am. Let me just say this real quick from a technical standpoint. I'm here. Yeah, I can hear you fine. I'm just getting an echo. It's echoing on me, and I don't know why. But you know what? It's all good. We're going to figure it out. It's the the first game of the season. You know, sometimes you got a great playbook, got a great strategy, but sometimes you got an audible in the first first drive. So we're going to work it out. We're going to work it out. But so while Dr. Piss is, is trying to figure out the uh, the echo in the background, look, you all, we missed you all this summer. We did a lot of plotting, planning, strategizing for this new season. I think you all are going to love some of the changes and some of the new things we're doing this season. Um, I can let you all know right now for all of our episodes of season, we have at least one guest for almost every single episode this season. So we are bringing you a lot, a lot, a lot of great quality content this season. I'm super excited. We got brand new guests. We got some returning guests this season. It's going to be an absolutely amazing season this year. I'm super excited for it. And we're starting off the season with an absolute powerful, powerful episode. And, you know, it's something that, Unfortunately, we have to talk about and bring awareness to because unfortunately, this thing still happens in not only America, but the world. And we're talking about predatory grooming in sports. Um, We have a very, very special guest here with us this morning, Mr. John Michael Lander. Good morning, sir. How are you today? Very well. Good morning to you, too. I'm doing well. Thank you for coming in, man. And, and we're really excited to hear your testimony and, and, and hear have you share your story this morning. Um, I ain't gonna lie to you. I just saw this morning you had a TED Talk and I love TED Talks. So I definitely plan on after this episode to go and watch your TED Talk. Um, to, but also, you know, also having you just share some of that as well on the episode this morning. So before we get started and all that, Dr. Pitts, what are you looking forward to this season? Cowboys winning the Super Bowl. <laughs> All right. Well, in transition to our topic. Um, wow, I didn't I didn't think we would have that type of transition point this early. <laughs> Ronnie, you knew. You um, knew, you knew, you knew. Wow. But no, okay. what am I really looking forward to this season as far as HT or just, just as far as HT, yeah. The growth. You know, one of the things that we were super duper duper excited about. Um is as we've just continued to great to gain an exorbitant amount of momentum, we've had more and more people reaching out to us wanting to be guests on HT. And that's, you know, that's not something that we take lightly. That That's uh, an honor for us because we say like, we're somebody to somebody, but to the world, like nobody knows who we are yet. 
so to to get these emails and to get these phone calls and to get comments on Instagram and in TikTok and and LinkedIn and all over the place that you know people are, are expressing interest from it was an honor it was really an honor so I am super excited about our continued growth I'm looking forward to the the impact that I believe that we're going to have because it's like we have these preliminary conversations about topics for the show, right? And our reservoir never runs dry. Right. It's like we keep coming up with stuff and we're constantly, like we've already started our running list for season five and we mm-hmm. just now start in season four. So um, I'm just, I'm, I'm excited about the impact that I believe that these conversations are gonna have um, on, on the athletic world. And I'm, and I'm looking forward to, to gaining more visibility and, and being able to, to have greater impact. And the Cowboys going through the Super Bowl. It was, you was really you was doing a phenomenal job to the last three seconds. The phenomenal job, but no, I, I echo a lot of your same sentiments about yeah. you know this upcoming season, the work we've put into you know really bring um, a really good lineup of guests, a really good lineup of topics to talk yeah. about. I always tell people, you know, if you go back and look at any of our previous three seasons, we've covered almost every single topic related to sports and mental health that you can possibly think of. And, you know, Mm -hmm. we're we're creating new ways to talk about those topics, bring awareness to those topics and really equip, you know, not only the athletes, but their families, their friends, the coaches, Mm -hmm. the organizations, the schools, Mm -hmm. all of these people, you know, trying to give them the best resources and knowledge possible as things continue to change, as sports change, as the world changes. So, you know, I'm really looking forward to this season. And so, yeah, um, any, are you watching any college football games today? Ronnie, TCU and Colorado play today. I'm, I'm really, I, I, I text uh, Tyrell this morning, wishing him uh, yes. really looking forward to that. Virginia State plays Norfolk State today at two. Um, yeah. You know, that's, that's a big thing here in Virginia. Um, yeah. It's a lot of, it's a lot of, I watched a phenomenal game last night between Louisville and Georgia Tech. That was a really, really oh. good game. Louisville ended up getting out, uh, uh, getting the win at the very last second. So that was a really good way to start the season. So yeah, I, I'm excited for all the all the games that got going on today. Twelve hours worth of games today, from twelve noon all the way to mm-hmm. ten p.m. tonight. So mm-hmm. really mm-hmm. looking forward to it. So, Doctor Pitts, did you have any any mental health tips of the week you want to start the season off with, or are we are we ready to jump right on in? Let's jump right in, and and I'm I'm thinking that the tip will come up or tips will come up as we're, we're navigating this conversation because it is such a powerful conversation. So I'll, I'll hold off. So right. let's go. All right. So like I said at the beginning, so we are talking about predatory grooming in sports. And this is a very serious topic and a very powerful topic to talk about because this, um, as of 2021, there was a recent study done by the NCAA that just for collegiate athletes, one in four collegiate athletes are exposed to some form of sexual abuse, rape, or assault by um, somebody, a leader on campus, a coach, um, somebody in a position of power on campus. Also to include the one in 10 regular college uh, population who are exposed to some form of sexual abuse, assault, um, molestation, things like that. So this is a really important topic. And, you know, um, over time, the inappropriate comes begins to feel normal. You know, grooming and abuse can occur at any level in any sport, whether that's with the amateur players or even the elite athletes. You know, almost most people think of children as being groomed. At in, anyone at any age can be a victim of grooming, however. 
So we're going to be talking with um, former Olympic diving contender and sexual abuse survivor, Mr. John Michael Landon this morning. John Michael, once again, thank you for coming on to the show. How are you this morning? Very well. Thank you again for inviting me and being a part of this. The energy here is just incredible. I love it. Um, I got to throw out Ohio State today. Ohio State, I hope you play well today. Just had to throw that in there. The Buckeyes. It's okay. Mm-hmm. It's okay. It's all right. You know what? You know what? That's all right. That's all right. That that's we'll we'll, we'll slide with Ohio State. Ohio State is, is a pretty good team, you know. But I'm not gonna lie to you, it's big blue all day. But we'll we'll, we'll... or is y'all or is y'all or is y'all Look, refer I'm, to I'm, it? I'm the... wearing blue for you, okay. <laughs> I could be wearing red, but I'm wearing blue. I'm, hey, look, I, I'm, I'm very persuasive when it comes to these teams and, and trying to get people to flip. I don't flip a couple Cowboys fans this offseason, so you know. He's I delusional. Mind, I don't mind flipping a couple Buckeyes fans either. Um, I, don't, so, I don't mind flipping. I don't mind flipping. <laughs> there we go. Yeah. Man. So, so John Michael, so once again, we really appreciate you coming on this morning to, to share your story and everything. So uh, before we start getting into uh, the, the nitty gritty and everything, if you don't mind just telling our audience just a little bit about yourself um, and, and some of your background in athletics and some of your uh, personal life as well. Sure. Um, I, I, would you like me to start at the beginning or how, how would you like me to start this? A- absolutely. Okay. If you want to start at the beginning, at the beginning. absolutely. Yeah. Uh, um, like 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 Ronnie said, I am a, a former Olympic diving contender and a sex abuse survivor. As a 14-year-old Olympic-bound athlete, the adults that were entrusted with my training and coaching sexually abused and trafficked me, causing one of the most exciting and prolific times of my life to be filled with shame and guilt. And uh, I still continued on to win gold medals at the Norway and the Danish Cups. So this happened throughout my whole high school years. When I was 14, I took eighth at the Junior Olympics at Lincoln, Nebraska, and there was a news article that ran out in the local paper, and a lawyer had read it, and he contacted my mother. And he and my mother started to meet over a couple of months. This was a slow process. And basically what he was doing was kind of grooming my mother first. And he told her that he had a group of professionals that were willing to come in and help so that I could achieve my dreams of going to the Olympics and getting a college scholarship. So that was my focus. And so they told, he, he also told my mother that these professionals would also help the family. Mm-hmm. And uh, my sister, my youngest sister had a terrible sledding accident and had to have a reconstructive surgery on her chin and the professionals took care of everything. And so what this was about, so as these meetings were going on, he basically told my mother, that all she had to do was have me be available for these professionals or the coach whenever they wanted me and at the time and at the right place and have me dressed and ready to go. And she signed a contract with this lawyer. And then after that, the lawyer met with me privately over a couple of months and started to share with me that these professionals were the only way I was gonna go to the Olympics. There was no other way it was gonna happen and that I had to follow and do everything that they told me to do. And he said, basically, all I had to do was to keep my grades up, do well in the competitions, and make sure the professionals were happy, whatever that meant. And I said, oh, okay, sure, why not? So then I signed a contract with the lawyer. 
And so basically the lawyer had also worked with the school. He worked with my diving team and set up things. He worked with the school that I would get my homework and everything ahead of time, as long as I had enough time to turn it back in and keep my A grade point average. So here I was on the outside, I looked like this, you know, privileged white middle-class male athlete. And I had all these privileges given to me. And, but there was this dark storm happening behind. And so what would happen is when this started to, started to take off, if you want to take it like that, my mother would have me ready for when the professional would drive up our farmhouse. I grew up in the farm. And um, I would go to these events, I call them. And they would, they would cover it by saying that I'd be going to dinner or going to a play or go see a movie. But I was taken to the Motel 6. Or I was taken over here to a home. And so I was being introduced. My first sexual experience was in a Motel 6 with a 60-year-old doctor. And that was my, my introduction into the sex world and my experiences. So all that took place. And so I started confusing myself. And like you were talking about, the grooming process becomes such a normal thing that we don't even realize it's happening. You know, I had all these other stipulations that I thought that I had to follow through to be the best athlete, the best student, the best son that I could be. And so I thought I was doing everything correctly. And so when I would go home after these events, my mother would, I would sit on my mother's bed and tell her what I had for dinner so that she felt that she was okay, that this was just a dinner. And I remember, I remember on my 16th birthday, I had this was going on since I was 14. And at 16, I didn't want to go. I wasn't going to go. I didn't want to do this. And I remember telling my mother, no. And she said, this is not very polite. I mean, this person drove all the way out here to, to pick you up. You have to go. And I said, no. And I thought that this is the time I could tell her something's wrong. And so I finally got the guts and I said, he touches me. And she says, well, what do you mean by that? And I said, he touches me down here. And she said, where? So I, I grabbed my crotch and I thought that she finally got it. And her, her face was there and I could see it. And then all of a sudden it changed and her lip got really thin. The next thing I know, she slaps me across the face and said, it's not nice to make up lies about people. He is a prominent person in this community. He's helping our family. If anything ever happened, it must have been your fault. So at that moment, I realized that uh, if my mother wasn't going to believe me, who else was? So I just took it all in and I just started to bury it. Later on, of course, when I talked to my mother just recently, we learned that the, the professional and the lawyer told her that if anything went wrong or if I didn't show up, that my father and her had to pay everything back that was given to the family and to me. And if they didn't have enough to pay back, they would be sued. And then that's ch children's services would come in and take the family away. So she was basically under this gun of fear, of, afraid of what was going to happen. And so, and again, I then, at that point, I, I, I started to think of ways to get help. And so by 16 on through the rest of my high school year, I started doing things that was kind of against my, my character. One of the things is I was always impeccably dressed. If I got dirt on anything, I had to change. I just was that way. But for one whole week during school, I wore baggy and torn up clothes. The same thing every day. 
no one asked me anything. So I thought, okay, that didn't work. Another week, I just decided I wasn't going to shower. And I was going to try to be as stinky as I can. And I know that's kind of funny to think about, but I thought that was a way to get attention. Because after signing the contract, I was never allowed to tell anybody of what was going on. Um, if I could indicate, or if I could get someone to ask me, especially an adult, then I have this other rule in my head that the adult, I have to respect them. I have to answer. I have to be truthful. Then I would be able to share. And I thought that was how I was going to get through it. The two, the two first indicators did not work. The final thing I tried to do was to drop the F-bomb as loud as I could in the hallway at school, in the classroom, in the library, it, uh, during practice. And no one asked me. No one said a thing. Um, and I, I remember later on just hearing that the teachers thought that I was under such pressure to represent the United States at international meets that I was just having these moments of ex explosion. And so they thought it wasn't anything that they need to go further with. So they never asked. And then on the other side, I, I started doing things that I, I thought would help ease the events with the professionals. And one of the ways I did is that um, like if I was in a car with them driving to wherever we were going, if I would turn the tables and kind of come on to that person who was the professional, then I would have the control. And what was really crazy about this is that most of these professional men were married and had children my age. So here I was saying, hey, you know, you're, you're, you're a hot daddy. I, I think you're really good looking. I, I could see us be together forever. That would freaking them out. And so one or two things would happen. I would be dropped off at the next, you know, stop sign and I'd mm -hmm. have to find my way home or it would become violent. But whatever it was, they were too embarrassed to tell the rest of the professionals what happened. And the other thing I did that was during the events, if I would not climax and made sure that they did first, I, I told myself that that wasn't sex. And then I had all the power. And um, again, that was just how I would try to figure out how to do this. And I remember during the events, there were things that would happen. I would like disassociate from my body. I would like go up in the corner and I would watch the whole thing happen. And when I was in the corner, I didn't have to feel. I couldn't feel what was going on. And I, I was able to just, you know, distance myself from that. And that was, that was one way of it. And then I started counting things. And I, I have a tendency to do this today, but I would like count the tiles or I'd count the, the ceiling partitions or whatever I could do just to remove myself from it. And so I, I just want to make sure that everyone knows that in sports, it is such a small world. And the people who are in power in power. And especially the higher you go up in the, um, the, the levels up to elite athlete, the fewer athletes there are. But there's always someone behind you who is willing to take your place. And you're constantly told that. You're always constantly told that you are replaceable. You are not the best. You're only as good as your last event. And there's if you are going to have problems or if you talk about this, which is what we saw with the U.S. gymnastics, you could easily be removed and replaced. So that fear we carried with us. Also with males, I believe, and I, I know you shared some stats, Ronnie. Um, there's also other stats that say one in four females and one in six males are sexually abused before 18. Mm -hmm. However, I think that these numbers are even higher in sports because athletes like myself, we were never going to report. 
-hmm. We were never going to turn on our coach who has made us into this champion. And nobody mm -hmm. would believe us anyway. And, and, and we've seen that play out in the sports world too. And, mm -hmm. and the other thing that's really interesting is through this grooming process, everything becomes normalized. But sexual abuse against males are always sometimes covered up as hazing, initiation, or rite of passage. Mm -hmm. And what happens in the locker room stays in the locker room. Mm -hmm. and, I, and I hate to say it, but we're seeing more and more people mm -hmm. stepping forward, male athletes in the NFL, hockey, all over the place saying, mm -hmm. I was abused, especially when they were in college. As we've seen mm -hmm. with Penn State, we've seen with, uh, you know, uh, Michigan State, Ohio State, all these mm -hmm. athletes are finally starting to step forward. But the sad thing about it is it's so easily covered up. Mm -hmm. And we have politicians here in Ohio that are covering up the Ohio State incident left and right. And as we saw with Simone Biles, she didn't have to go to that last Olympics. Mm -hmm. He chose to, to keep the story going about Nasser and what he did and what all what the U.S. gymnastics did to protect him. And so this whole experience that I went through, I've created a program called the Predatory Grooming Trifecta, which is where the predator um, grooms the institution or the organization first. Then they go in and groom the parents. And then after they have those two set up, they can go groom the child. And this protects this predator for years from being, um, uh, or being detected or anything like that. And so it's really sad is that we see this also within the U.S. gymnastics is when Nasser was actually abusing the young athletes with their parent in the room with them. His back was to the parents or the parents was to his back. He's manipulating the athlete and telling the parent these medical terms and things that he's doing to help this child. Later on, when that child says something to the parent, the parent goes, oh, no, no, no. That was just the medical thing that they had to do. So that's the kind of things that are covered up and, and, our, and our universities do not want to have a sex scandal because we've seen that with what's going on and the money that is being paid out. They're trying so hard to keep everything quiet that they are protecting predators that are within the sport. And the other thing that I'm really, I hate to say this, is that we have a, an organization called Safe Sport, which is where all elite Olympic and Paralympics and all these top athletes are supposed to go to if anything has ever happened and make a report. <clears throat> there are so many reports that they're unable to cut, do everything. And these predators are moving from team to team to team and still coaching and manipulating children. Man, John Michael, I, I, I really appreciate you um sharing that and, and speaking on that. Um, I, I would imagine now that, you know, now that you are on the other side of, of this horrific trauma and able to really process, talk about it and share, you know, your story with countless others. Um, but just hearing about it, you know, doesn't, never gets any easier to hear about it, especially the multitude of people who have similar stories, similar experiences and things of that nature. And you touched on a lot of other uh, pieces with, you know, the Larry Nassar case with Michigan State and the Olympics, with Jerry Sandusky at Penn State and the things he was doing. Even just most recently, a couple months ago, uh, Northwestern, their entire, their head coach was uh, let go, but the entire staff stayed behind. And to your point, you know, the head coach was, you know, he's the, the figurehead. So they got rid of him, but it was the assistant coaches on Northwestern staff that was carrying out a lot of these 
egregious just sexual abuse rituals and and things that they had the athletes you know continuing to do um and even at one point the coaches wore a shirt you know kind of like getting back at the school and getting back at the players like saying we're still here like you know you can't get rid of us and things like that kind of just rubbing it in the players faces who you know came out and reported you you mentioned that this lawyer started with your mother um, started with your family and everything, and even made this investment to help out your sister who had this accident and everything. And kind of, you know, when we talk about, even for me and Dr. Pitts, when we work with, you know, families and things like that, regardless of what their trauma is, one of the things that we really try to talk to families about is understanding how kids model what they see from their parents, you know. And when you get the parents to buy in, the kids oftentimes is not going to go against the parents' well wishes of the parents' final choices. So when you get the parents to buy in, it makes it even more difficult for the kid to sit there and say, hey, this is going on. And like you kind of like with your story, like you said, like, you know, you got to a point where you're like, mom, like, this is what's happening. This is what's going on. And she's like, hey, don't you say that. Don't what's wrong with you? You don't see what this man did for your sister. You don't see what this man is doing for us. You don't see what these people are doing to help you out. They're trying to get you to the Olympics and you're acting ungrateful and selfish right now. You know, whatever that reaction was like. And like you said, from that moment on, when you've, a lot of people talk about being alone, but really don't understand what it means to feel alone, especially from an emotional loneliness. When I have nobody, nowhere, no how to share what I'm feeling. And even at the age of 16, you know, 16, you know, close to adult years and stuff like that. But to have to deal with that emotional turmoil and emotional just debauchery is unfathomable from anybody of any age. Um, and so I really appreciate you, you know, sharing your story and sharing those things. I'm, I'm, I know Dr. Pitts has a, a probably a few uh, uh, comments to make as well. Wow. Um, John Michael, thank you. The, that level of vulnerability and transparency and the courage um, that it takes to share the magnitude of trauma that you endure is just worthy of, of, of honor and just truly worthy of, of celebration of that courage. Because so oftentimes when you hear those words, guilt and shame, um, people are terrified to share because of fear of judgment and criticism. And particularly at the, the time that we live in where social media is just demonic in so many different ways. Um, so thank you for that. You, you said a few things, and I, I wanted to clarify something first. I just wanted to offer a, a technical definition for what is child sexual abuse for our audience first and foremost. So child sexual abuse occurs when an adult, a much older child or someone in a position of power forces a child to have some type of sexual contact with them. Most often sexual abuse involves acts such as kissing, fondling, rubbing, oral sex or penetration of the vagina or buttocks by fingers, penis or a foreign object. Um, how common is child sexual abuse? And you all touched on the statistics. Child sexual abuse, and this is the piece that I wanted to emphasize because we talked about it before we went live. What a lot of people don't understand is that the, the child sexual abuse cuts across all 
all racial, ethnic, religious, and economic groups. Our best estimate is that one in four girls and one in six boys are abused before the age of 18, as you said. But I want to zero in on the racial component because when you when you acknowledge that you are, you know, a Caucasian male of, of privilege, right? And sexual abuse didn't discriminate. It 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 found you, it sought you out, it it groomed you, it preyed upon you. And, and it's horrific. What that says to me though, is if you could experience such horrific trauma, what does that also look like for populations that are more at risk? And what we talked about pre-live was you, and I want you to speak more to this if you will, sir, that the African-American community is not being heard. The African-American community is not being addressed. When you look statistically, for example, at the contribution, I'm gonna to speak to the pro-statistics for a moment. The, the percentage of African-Americans that make up the NFL, the NBA, and the MLB. Mm-hmm. And what does that look like on the, those rosters? And then when you look at what those rosters look like, even at the, the D1, two, or three level, my brain says how much more at risk are ethnic minorities to this predatory behavior? Could you speak to that, please? Well, I, I, as we know, we don't have stats for this because yeah. uh, unfortunately, yeah. the, the, the minorities are not able to step forward and speak yeah. or mm-hmm. report. Yeah. Um, and even if they did, I hate to say this, our patriarchal society, the way it is set up right now, mm-hmm. are not going to believe or want to hear what yeah. they have to say. Yeah. And that breaks my heart because yeah. I, I know several athletes who uh, were on in the NFL and, and, um, and even Terry Crews, who's on, you know, America's Got Talent, talks yep. about being sexually abused, but nobody believed him or right. wanted to believe him because of who he yeah. is. And what he looked at from a physical stat, a physical stature yes. as well. You're this because big his- black guy who would even think about trying to touch you like that. Yeah. And I think, yeah. and, and I, I know this could be a whole nother discussion and a whole nother um, podcast, but what happens to the body when that line is crossed is unexplainable. And each, each survivor is unique in how they respond and what their body does. Uh, there's a Dr. Hopper who talks about how the body goes into a defensive mode mm-hmm. once that is crossed over. Yep. And in my case, I froze. I, I didn't know how to fight back. I didn't know what was happening as a teenager. And, and I was like, first of all, is this really happening? Is this what this is supposed to be? These questions are going through the head first. And I can only speak from my side of, of being a, a white man. And then the other thing that was really confusing, and I both, and I'm sure you both can also talk about this, is that my body reacted in ways that I didn't want it to be. And then I was told that I must like it and that I must have enjoyed it. And this is what I wanted. And so then it becomes my fault again. And so I can only imagine with, with uh, several of um, I was a teacher at a high school for, for seven years. And one of our, our athletes was a young black man who, was, who ended up going to Ohio State in track and field. And yet for him to be able to speak 
and say something was wrong took guts. Because one, he's not only dealing with what our society is thinking is, you know, masculine, toxic masculinity or masculine anxiety, but he's also dealing with his race and, and his barriers that are put on that. He cannot show that he's weak. He cannot show that he was at a moment of vulnerability, because then that would mean that he was not a man. And, and, it, and it breaks my heart when we talk about this, because in, I think each race has their own stipulations of what it is to be a man. And then, of course, there's the whole society of putting what it is to be a man. And we're not allowed to talk about emotions. We're not allowed to talk about feelings. And um, we only hear about the women, you know, the Me Too movement, the uh, U.S. gymnastics situation with Dr. Strat, I mean, Dr. Nasser. But do we ever remember the three boys that were abused by Nasser? No. Do we know of any of the people who were, went through Penn State? No. And they were all and members. Even, yeah, they were all males. And Ohio State with, with Dr. Strauss, who was one of my abusers. He was a part of that professional team that was a trafficking me and passing me around. I would go to Ohio State as a 14, 15, 16-year-old. I was left with him on weekends and weeks. And I was constantly abused by him. But nobody wants to believe that. I mean, we have a politician here who still denies that this ever happened. And, and it's hard to get things movement. My case for Ohio State has been denied three times because I was a teenager. I was not a student and I was not a graduate of Ohio State. Although I was brought onto campus, left with this man and abused. So my voice was yelling out saying, so is it okay to bring teenagers on campuses, leave them, let them get abused, and no one's going to do anything about it? That's what you're saying, Ohio State. And they're saying, oh, well, we don't want to open that up because that's going to open. And I said, I'm not the only teenager that was here. And we know that that's happening still across our country in universities. Universities, it's, and I hate to say this, but it's almost like it's very protected. Of, their, of what's their, their, their professors, their coaches and all this. There is a whole hierarchy going on in universities that are going to take care of those people first because they want to rep, uh, protect their, their reputation. And you know, they, want to, they want to uh, protect the money that's coming into the schools. And, and we saw that with the, you know, the U.S. gymnastics as it slowly started to fall apart. We saw how the top CEO was protecting everybody below to keep his six figures. The athletes were no longer people, we were numbers. And that's the same in colleges, we're only numbers. And we could easily be replaced at any moment. I don't know if that addressed everything you were talking about, Dr. Pitts, but it is so hard, especially for our, for our black athletes, who this may be mm -hmm. their only opportunity to move forward mm -hmm. and make a new life for themselves, coming mm -hmm. from a, a social economic or anyone who's coming from a poor background, mm -hmm. white, black, Chinese, anything, anything, Asian, mm -hmm. whatever, and, and have this opportunity given to them mm -hmm. and then have it being abused at the same time yeah. and then carrying that for the rest of their life. I truly think that since males are so reluctant to report that if we were able to go back and talk to all the young men and older men who have committed mm -hmm. suicide, that yeah. we may have found out that they had been sexually abused in their past. Yeah. 
and that they have been carrying this and harboring this secret all their life. And the other reason why I say that is that as a teacher, I was presented by a, a young sophomore who came to my classroom and told mm -hmm. me that he was basically in this relationship with a 35-year-old man. And I asked him, why was he doing that when all these other guys liked him in school? And he'd said, well, this guy pays for the, the groceries and the bills. And that was like the, the Pandora's box for me that opened up. And that's mm -hmm. when I started realizing these red flags. I'm talking mm -hmm. to myself, basically. Yeah. And that's when I started to open up and realize that I have all these secrets and all these things that I've been lying to. And I went into an abyss. And I, I was going to end it. I actually walked into the garage and turned the car on and I was sitting there and I was inhaling the exhaust fumes saying that I'm not worth it. I can't handle this anymore. I can't tell the truth. Yeah. I can't tell people because no one's going to believe me. Why didn't I say it earlier? And yeah. I, I think that's one of the things we fear about as survivors is that no one's going to believe us. And all we really want to be is heard and believed. Right. And Dr. Pitts, thank you so much because what you said after I sh shared my story, I felt so overwhelmed with pride and, and love because mm -hmm. I felt like you've heard me and you acknowledged it. And that way, I, I just got goosebumps thinking about it again. And, and that means more to us than, you know, getting, you know, someone get to go to jail and getting paid millions of dollars or whatever anyone gets for retribution. And, and I think that's one of the things our society also misunderstands. These young women who were with Nasser, who all got paid something, mm -hmm. everyone thinks then they're sh they should be okay. But what they don't understand, these young women are now just beginning their healing journey that right. will take the rest of their lives. Right. And I and, and I know that you you both know that if there are stories and reports of how much it has cost a, a child sexual survivor throughout their mm -hmm. whole life through therapy help substance abuse, all the amount of money, what we're getting back from like our abusers barely, barely touches what we have gone through. Yeah. Oh, go ahead, Dr. Pitts. No, you, 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 you go ahead first. I'll wait. So John, Michael, I wanted to ask you something. Um, so you mentioned how um, when you were in school in, in high school and everything, how teachers, you know, they attributed your behaviors to uh, basically attention seeking. Um, but did no follow-up or no digging into what was causing your attention-seeking behaviors outside of the fact that, oh, John Michaels, uh, he's preparing for the Olympics. I, I can't swim. I can't dive. So, I mean, I can't understand what he's going through. So let me not even ask or whatever. When you got to college and everything, the, the, the predators who were, you know, um, I don't want to say, I guess, in charge of you or were, who were grooming you during that process. Did they have a heavy influence on how where you went to college, um, how far you left from the Ohio area? What was that transition like from high school to college um, with the with this group of men that were, you know, continuously in your life throughout high school? That's a great question, Ronnie. And I, and I want to say that um, I thought that once I got out of high school, I was done with them. And I had gotten away from them. They wanted me to go to Ohio State because that's where they're, they're based out of was Columbus. And I was not going to go there. I, I refused. There was no way. And I, I thought that I would go as far away as I could. I applied for Stanford. I applied at 
uh, University of Hawaii, and then I applied at the um, University of California, Irvine. And of course, when Stanford turned me down, I thought that was the end of the world. I, I was done for, and I was never going to get away. But Irvine um, offered me an academic and an athletic scholarship. So I went. What I had no idea about was that they were still involved. They were paying for my everything else that needed to be paid for. Some, you know, that what the scholarships weren't covering, such as like room and board sometimes, uh, food, um, just just the incidentals that you need to go to college, books sometimes. And so I, I thought that I was finished with them and I wasn't. And um, when I was at, at the University of California, I, I somehow snubbed a grad student. And again, this is one of these examples I'm only gonna share because of the fact that if you do not get the professional help you need at the time, you will start repeating certain actions and you know putting yourself back into situations so that you can actually figure out you need the help and go get it. So what I had done is I totally ignored this guy or brushed him off or something. He started following me and stalking me and leaving notes for me. And eventually what had happened is that he he, he got me and um, abused me and left me in the wooded area on campus. And I woke up the next morning and had to go to the medical center and all that stuff. But it was crazy is that I had gone four years of high school dealing with all these different professionals. And I thought that I was okay. And it took one grad student and I fell apart. I, I became very sick and I, I, I had to leave school. And so what happened? The lawyer steps in, flies me back to Ohio, and I'm back in the circle again. And the only way I got out of this whole circle was I actually went to a local university here near my town and there was a dance teacher there from New York. And I, I, I took a dance class. I thought, well, you know, I need something. And she noticed something and she pulled me into her office and she was the first person to ever ask me what was going on. It took a while. I wasn't gonna just blurt it all out. We, we met over the whole semester and I finally told her the story. So she basically took it upon herself to help me get away. And um, when I was in LA, you know, going to Irvine, I was on General Hospital and I was doing extra work. And so she contacted the casting director. They talked about it. He said, well, give him work. They helped me find a place. The next thing I knew, I was on a plane back to LA. I was in an excluded place. My mother didn't know where I was. And that's where it all began to escape these people. I did get a letter from my mother that was sent to the, um, the studio and it, it did not have a return address. And inside it was very cryptic. It says, whatever you do, do not tell anyone where you're at. They're looking for you. And that was it. And so that was my, my way out of it. But the ironic thing is going from what I was living through to Hollywood and putting myself into the Hollywood system, putting myself back in front of abusers. And that's a whole nother story we could talk about. As as far as the relationship between you and your mother and uh, father, um, I guess once it became blatantly evident to them that this was going on, um, that you had been, you know, groomed and 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 sexually assaulted, you know, for years at, up to that point, 
Um, and I, you know, I know you said you, uh, when you moved back to LA, your mom didn't know who you were. How has you and your parents' relationship changed or grown? Or what does, what does the dynamic of your relationship with your parents look like now that at 16, the 16 year old kid who told his mom, probably one of the most difficult things a kid could tell their parents, how has that dynamic shifted in the year since then? Well, I don't know if it's actually shifted in a way. I, I, I think there's different ways that I look at it and how I've acknowledged it. I think the first thing that made the biggest move is when I finally acknowledged and recognized that I was abused and that these people were part of it and how it worked out. Uh, my father has passed away, so we never got to um, talk about it or even explain about it. I will say that uh, uh, last year I was interviewed by the George Clooney production company. They're doing a whole um, documentary on Ohio State and the abuse that happened with Dr. Strauss. And um, they were interested in meeting my mother. And so the director actually had a three-way call. And this was the first time that we ever really talked about what happened. Mm. And my mother on the call was amazing. I, I was blown away. I mean. She told the director that she had a feeling, a, a sixth feeling in her stomach that something wasn't right, but she was too embarrassed to say anything. She was worried about what other people would think, what the ladies down the street were going to think if they heard about this. So she put her reputation in front of everything else. So, and she felt sorry about that. And um, her whole message that she wanted to share is that parents need to follow that feeling. If they have that feeling, check it out don't deny it. And it was a really interesting. And they decided that they wanted to have her on the on the film as well. And then the day of the shooting, she never showed up. And no one could reach her. I called her several times, she would not pick up the phone. And so we had to go ahead and do the taping without her. Um, but my mother to this day, still is very distant, I guess you would say about it. She she doesn't want to talk about it. Um, she doesn't understand. And uh, again, I think it's her embarrassment of what happened. Um, she did say she felt she was groomed by the lawyer. He groomed her first to get, to get access to me. She said she felt guilty about handing me over basically to them. But she also thought it was helping me to achieve my dream. And it was also helping the family get what they needed. So she thought she was doing what she was supposed to do. Um, I, I want to share some technical information really quick, but it it sort of um, puts a, 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 a it ties everything together that you are are saying. Um, and then I want to share something. And then I've, I've I mean, you asked me at the beginning about a tip. I've I've decided how I want to contribute to my closing out part. Um, when should you suspect child sexual abuse? Many children experience guilt or embarrassment following sexual abuse. Some may also be threatened by an offender to keep them from telling. Despite these reasons, most child sexual abuse victims are identified because a child told an adult and the adult believed the child. Sometimes children accidentally revealed the abuse by demonstrating advanced sexual knowledge or behavior. That was what I did when I was sexually abused. A caregiver might suspect sexual abuse 
if the child exhibits sudden changes in behavior, such as nightmares, being alone more than usual, excessive anger, jumpiness, inappropriate sexual behavior, dropping the F-bomb <laughs> everywhere you can, right? You know, where, being meticulous one day about your dress and coming, that, that's mind-boggling to me that folks just attributed it to that. Um, one way to make it easier for children to tell about sexual abuse is to educate them about sex and what adults can and cannot do with children. How should you respond if you suspect child sexual abuse? Of course, it's natural for caregivers to be upset if they find their child has been sexually abused, but it is important to try to remain calm for the child's sake. If the child observes how upset or angry the caregiver is, the child may get scared and clam up. It is incredibly important not to blame the child. It is incredibly important not to blame the child. It is incredibly important not to blame the child for the sexual abuse. You can even congratulate the child for telling you. Some children may say they initiated the sexual contact or that the contact felt good, but that does not mean that the child is to blame. But that does not mean that the child is to blame or should feel guilty. It is always the adult's responsibility to set appropriate limits. One more thing I wanna add in there before I could share that last tip on that. What a lot of people don't know, and Ronnie and I have touched on this before, John Michael, on the show, is that your mind knows that you're being sexually abused and that what's happening to you is inappropriate and a crime. Your body doesn't. Our body, by design, responds to stimulus. The body doesn't know that the stimulus is occurring inappropriately. It just knows that it's being stimulated. We have these same conversations when we're working with survivors or, you know, whether it's male or female or whomever, because there's a lot of guilt and shame that's associated with, well, I, I climax. Your body doesn't know that you were being sexually abused. Your body just knows that it was being stimulated. So people need to educate themselves about this topic so that you are making well-informed decisions where your children are concerned so that you are not adding to the trauma. Where should you go for help if you suspect child abuse? If you suspect that a child has been sexually abused, you should report it to your state's Department of Child Protective Services. Most states also have a 24-hour toll-free number. You can remain anonymous when you report. The caseworker will ask you some questions about the child, the possible offender, and the circumstances of the abuse. Child Protective Services will most likely investigate the sexual abuse allegations and provide help to the child and family. Information about Child Protective Services in your state is likely published on your state's website. The other thing that is, is so dangerous where this concerned, particularly where children that are more at risk for abuse are concerned, is that, I'm gonna speak about African-Americans. Mm -hmm. There's such a stigma associated with the system, the police, the, the CPS or you know, DIFUS or whatever Child Protective Services is called in your particular state, to hell with all of that. That's secondary. That is absolutely positively secondary because as you said, the amount of time that it can take for this to be addressed and the additional 
damage that can be done to the mm. child while folks are waiting and navigating and all of this stuff. It's, I agree with you, John Michael, when you said if, if God rest their souls, if we could bring back mm. some of these athletes that have committed suicide, chances are we would find out that there is sexual abuse trauma. And then the last thing that I want to say, Ronnie, and I'll pass it back to you. And then I, I do have a, a final tip. One of the, uh, I grabbed my TFCBT um, clinical handbook because I wanted to, to, to check that. And we have a sheet in here that we use when we're working with kids that have been sexually abused. And it's, it happens to people, you know, there's no athletes on here. No surprise by that. But I did want to share some of these names that, that children of all ethnic groups are familiar with. Tom Arnold, Drew Carey, Derek Luke, Tyler Perry, um, Roseanne Barr, Drew Barrymore, Halle Berry, Delta Burke, Angie Dickinson, Fran Drescher, um, Patty Duke, Farrah Fawcett, Terry Hatcher, Goldie Hawn, Anne Hesch, Kelly McGillis, um, Rosie O'Donnell, Tatum O'Neill, Rosie Perez, Suzanne Summers, Gabrielle Union, um, Greg Luganis, he's the Beth on there, uh, Maya Angelou, Antoine Fisher. Mm, who else do we have? Ellen DeGeneres, um, Christina Aguilera, Mary J. Blige, Ella Fitzgerald. Billie Holiday, Missy Elliott, Sinead O'Connor, Ozzy Osbourne, Marie Osbourne, Queen Latifah, Carlos Santana, Tina Turner, former President Bill Clinton, mm. Oprah Winfrey. It happens to people we know. And that's not the full list. Those are just the most common names that I believe that people of all ages would be familiar with. And as you can see that, that racial dynamic is diverse. It doesn't discriminate. It doesn't discriminate. Back to you, Ronnie. I'll, I'll, I got a final thought and whenever you pass it back to me, I'll, I'll close us out with that. I just got uh, two quick questions for you, John Michael. Um, so my first question is, is, you know, um, this story originated in the pursuit of a dream, the pursuit of a passion of wanting to become an Olympic diver representing the United States um, and, and things of that nature. So after having to endure and survive the uh, the traumas that were exposed to you and had to endure with for, for years, um, how do you look at swimming as an adult now? And what do you say to families who want their kids to swim? Do you still have that same passion and love for swimming? Or is it hard to separate the passion from the pain that swimming, not necessarily, it wasn't swimming's fault that it brought about it, but just the association? Right. Um, I, I am a passionate person about the Olympics and about all the athletes that have gone. Um, when Olympics comes comes around, do not bother me. I am right in front of that TV, watching it and cheerleading and and stuff like that. I one of the healing things that I did for myself was uh, to become a FINA judge, and I was able to judge all over the world, and that put me back into the the arena, you know, that I was at. 
Uh, the other part of that is I was able to see where the weaknesses were and where some of the abuse was still happening. And that was a really big issue for me. And then I decided I'd become a, a board member of the Army of Survivors, which is was started by three women who were abused by Dr. Nasser and were gymnasts. And what I've done there is been able to take all that information and be part of the um, Olympic athlete bylaws and, and Bible that, that we created for them to help them be able to have a voice and share what was going on and able to go to speak on Capitol Hill and share our stories and, and create legislations that are helping and trying to get this out there. And so that, that athletes are safe. And the, the important thing is, is my dream was cut short. You know, I, I, I was, you know, right before the last Olympics that I was qualified for, I, I couldn't go because it all finally caught up with me. And I mentally was not able to even go to the to the the, the, the Olympic trials. No way. And I, I think it took me a long time to get over that. Thank you for thank you for answering that. And, and my final question, um, you mentioned that you were a teacher for seven years um, and you were able to even in that seven years um, help a, uh, a high school student during that time recognize the abuse that he was going through. What do you say to teachers, parents out there who might have that that gut feeling, who might have that they see something off? Um, especially for teachers, you know, um, we don't necessarily have the official numbers and things like that, but I would imagine throughout the high schools, middle schools, and elementary schools across the country, um, these things happen to kids, maybe not necessarily at the school, but in their communities. What do you say to the teachers or what will be some helpful things for teachers to know what to look out for, what they can do um, as mandated reporters, as people who, if a student comes to talk to them about this, what are some things that helped you out in that process that could help them out? First of all, are all mandated reporters and right. they should be. And I think everybody needs to take that responsibility of that. The other thing I think it is, is that it, in, in my case, I think I unknowingly and uh, was very open about things and, and, and the kids felt that they could come and tell me things. There were certain things that happened after this young man where um, a, young, a young girl was asked into the theater department to have her take her shirt off and have pictures taken. And she told me about that. And again, I went back to report it. And they said it's just her word against his. And she had a reputation of being kind of easy. And that's when I, I gave my notice. Because I thought, if you guys are protecting the person who's causing this, I don't care. Even if she agreed to it, she's only 17. Right. you know, And he's in power. He asked her to take her shirt off so he can take the picture. And five years later, it came out in the news. It took that long before they found out because the principal was trying to protect the school is what she said. And she didn't want bad, you know, reports coming up. So I, I think that's all part of it. And I think the most important thing is just to believe them. If a child comes to you, what I, and I don't know what the stat is, it's like less than 4% would ever make up that they were sexually abused, you know? Um, it's it still carries that stigma about that that's a bad thing. I don't want to admit to that. But the best thing that you could do as a teacher or a parent is to listen and believe and um, and ask questions that are open and and give that child space enough to be able to tell you the stories. They may not come out all at once and tell you everything you need. Like you're telling about Dr. Pitts about the man who wanted to take his daughter or whatever to the police. 
and he felt that he needed to have all that information. Unfortunately, children's minds do not fully develop until their late 20s, and we don't know what it means. We don't know how to put it into words. And I, even to this day, when I'm talking to my partner or if I'm having a, a triggered moment, I don't know how to develop the words that I want to say to describe what I'm feeling. It, it, it doesn't come up. It doesn't happen. And it's very frustrating for me as a survivor, which is also very frustrating for the ally trying to understand. So there's that moment of stillness almost that where you both are just staring at each other, but you know something's wrong. And I think that's the instinct that you need to follow through and you need to just make sure like, like what you both have done for me today is to hear me and believe me. And that is the biggest step that people can take. Thank you, John. Mike. I really appreciate that. Dr. Piss, go ahead and, and close us out. Oh. Wow. Um, let me. You're muted again. Sorry about that. Uh, I just want to note a couple of things first. I think that it's really important. And, and, and John, Michael, you, you talked about it. You shared with us how you attempted to act out, to give somebody a clue, hey, something is going on with me. So when we look at how does sexual abuse affect children, they have different reactions, right? Um, they may act out, they um, may show signs of distressing and frequent memories or nightmares of the abuse. They may avoid people, places, and things that remind them of the abuse. They may have problems sleeping or difficulty concentrating or have anger outbursts or start engaging in hypersexual behavior. Um, the list goes on and on and on because there's no cookie cutter, right? It's going to depend on each child. So what I wanted to um, share is some helpful guidelines. And then John Michael, if you would, um, if you are willing to share how people can follow you on social media, how they can connect with you. Um, one of the things that I shared before we went live is, you know, someone may be interested in having you come in to do a speaking engagement on this topic because it is so extremely important. So some helpful, some helpful guidelines that can be instrumental in helping you to talk to your child um, about the trauma. Explore your own personal feelings about the trauma before talking to your child. Anticipate your reactions and think about how they may affect your child. You might do this by sharing your feelings with other adults or professionals. You talk about your mom having embarrassment about it. You know, one of the things that I've I've said to parents that I've work with who have reacted the same way is that part of that that we don't talk enough about beyond the shame is that acknowledging that you were telling the truth also means they have to acknowledge that they failed you in that moment that they didn't protect you that they didn't know and oftentimes parents will say that right I should have known and there are instances where it was evident particularly when the child disclosed but there, there are, because of grooming, there are also times when the parent didn't know and couldn't have known because the groomer did such a, a, a horrifically good job of grooming the child. Um, work on reducing, you, this is to, to the parent, work on reducing avoidance of trauma-related discussion 
and show your child that you're willing to talk openly about it. Like you said, your mom, it's, it's like both topics. And it's the same way with, with, I can talk to my dad, but I don't, I don't talk to my mom about my trauma. Um, encourage trauma-related discussion gradually, for example, start with discussions that are more general, how somebody who has been abused might feel, slowly moving towards discussion about your child's more personal experience with abuse and how give them space. Don't tell them how they feel. Give them space to convey to you how they feel. Use age-appropriate materials. So if you're talking to a, a small child versus an adolescent versus your adult child, those conversations are going to look and be very different. And use open-ended questions. Don't mm-hmm. put words in your child's mouth regardless of what age they are. You need to be able to give them space to speak freely about what their experience was with the abuse. It's all about creating an emotionally safe space so that your child, no matter what their age is, can speak openly with you about what is going on. John Michael, there aren't words to, I did good today, Ronnie, I didn't cry. I mean, I didn't want to put an over under on, you know, your tears for today's episode. I just felt Goodness like that's a little gracious. childish, but little surprise, surprise, just a little. Yeah, I did. I did because John Michael. Usually, I'm a just like taking a minute to get myself together. Um, thank you, thank you so much for your courage, for your poise, for your work that you're doing to protect children and families from having to go through the horror that was your life for so many years. We applaud you, sir, and we thank you. Would you be kind enough, if you're comfortable doing so, to share with our our audience how they can connect with you and learn more about the predatory grooming trifecta? Sure, definitely. Um, You you can reach me through email with johnmichael.lander at gmail.com. I'm also, if you Google my name, you'll find ways. I I have a website called an athlete's silence and the two S's are there, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, and that can give you contact information as well. Mm -hmm. Um, I I just want to say that one of the things that changed my life was when I became part of the self-talk Institute Mm -hmm. and um, they totally changed my mindset and helped me acknowledge and accept what I went through. Mm-hmm. And since then, I, I'm so passionate about that, that I've become a trainer and a, a coach nice. myself. And nice. I'm happy to talk to anybody about what they're going through or if they know somebody. And yeah. I would love to connect with both of you and, and keep Absolutely. working with the two of you, because this has been unbelievable to me. I, I, like I said, I've spoken all over the place, but today felt really real. It felt really wow. connected and, 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 um, much transparent you know and we and we throw that word around a lot but today it it really Mm -hmm. is what the true meaning of transparency was to me and i would i would speak with you both anytime any place so i want to thank you so much for that thank you you, man we 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 couldn't have started off this season any more powerful than we did today and we attribute that to you and your vulnerability and your testimony man and and thank you so much for sharing that man Um, you, you continue to impact lives. And after today's episode, I promise you, you will continue to impact many more. You've impacted mine today. Um, yeah. It was it was a very powerful conversation to have to sit and process 
Um, yeah. and, and thank you for sharing that, man. Um, yeah. I, I've learned a lot today about what to look out for, some things to to think of that even for me, um, as a former athlete, you know, didn't uh, necessarily think about. So thank you again, man. Re- we really appreciate your time today. Thank you. you have the keys to the house, sir. Yeah. So your, fa- your family now, your family now. Thank so you. you are welcome. I appreciate that. Um, you know, the, any anytime you want to to just jump in and, and join the conversation, uh, the topics are the, the, all of the topics are pretty deep topics. Um, but but definitely because what we do know to be true is that your story can't fit in an hour and eight minutes. Um, so so there's more, there's more, and and we would be honored and, and privileged to hear more whenever you feel ready to join us to to share more. So thank you so much. Ronnie, take us home. Well, look, y'all, that's episode 131 of season four House Talk pregame. Be sure to be back here next Saturday, same time, same place, as we have another powerful topic and another special guest joining us. So once again, everybody, enjoy your weekend. Have a safe and happy Labor Day weekend. And until next week, be easy. (music) 